Welcome to Armenian Alliance Conversations. I'm Manyak Sakyan. One of the goals of this series is to highlight the amazing work that Armenian organizations are doing in Armenia and Artsakh. Today, we will be discussing the work of the Paros Foundation, which is focused on economic development, job creation, education, cultural projects, and supporting local organizations in Armenia. My guest today is Peter Abadjan, the executive director of the Paros Foundation. Mr. Abadjan has worked in the Armenian American community for more than 25 years. He receives his Bachelor of Science degree in political science from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. He completed graduate courses in business and marketing at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He has worked with the Armenian Assembly in both its Washington, D.C. offices and the Los Angeles offices. In 2006, Mr. Abajan and his family moved to Armenia to launch and lead the Paros Foundation. He currently splits his time between his home in Los Angeles and his home in Yerevan, Armenia. Peter, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Manyak. Before each interview, I ask all of my Armenian guests if they would be willing to talk about their Armenian heritage, because we need to learn about the Armenian communities that exist all over the world. Very often, the history of a single Armenian family takes place in multiple countries. What country is your family originally from, and which Armenian communities do you relate to? That's a terrific question, and I love the opportunity to talk about my family. Um, my mom was actually born in the U.S., uh, and my uh, father was born in Istanbul, so I'm sort of a half Bolsahai. Uh, and at the same time, my uh, three out of my four grandparents were from uh, all from the same village in uh, western Armenia, uh, Gayseri, so we're Gayserites. Uh, and uh, kind of funny, one of my first recollections of being asked where I was from uh, happened when I was actually in, in college. Uh, and there was a, um, a brilliant uh, carpet person um, who had a uh, exhibit of carpets he brought to town. And we were helping set those carpets up as part of the Armenian Student Club. And he was asking all of us where we were from, et cetera. And he said, oh, you're Gaisertsi. That means you guys are thieves and you make good bastarma. <laughs> yeah, I just love that because... Every every region of Armenia has a stereotype associated with it, and it's and it's really fun to you know you know play around with it. I, I mean, the, there are so many jokes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Please tell us how the Paros Foundation got started. Who was involved, and what was it like in the beginning? Uh, so we started the foundation in two thousand and six. Uh, in two thousand and five. I had uh, made the decision to leave uh, my current job with the Armenian Assembly, and one of our um, members that I had met through the, through the Armenian Assembly uh, and through the community in San Francisco um, actually reached out to me a couple of months uh, after uh, I made the announcement that I was leaving and said, listen, I'm doing a little bit of work in Armenia now. I'm thinking of launching a foundation, and would you consider partnering with me on it, and we'll, uh, we'll launch the foundation. Uh, the person that reached out to me uh, is Roger Strauch. Uh, he's a German-American um, that has a long history of being involved in Armenia. Uh, and he was, uh, if I may take a minute and, and uh, ex explain the story, it's kind of interesting. Uh, so when Roger was 14 years old, his father was uh, working with the Soviet Union on the Synchrotron Accelerator Project. They were coordinating through the National Academy of Sciences. Roger's dad was building the U.S. accelerator, and uh, Ardem Alakhanyan was building the, the Soviet accelerator in Yerevan, Armenia, at the Physics Institute. So the, the American and the Soviet were coordinating back and forth on the scientific exchange, and they became friends. Uh, and uh, Roger had invited, uh, Roger's father had invited Ardem and his family to the U.S., and uh, vice versa, uh, Ardem invited Roger, uh, Carl Strauch, uh, Roger's dad, and his family. So Roger was 14 years old and went to the Soviet Union um, and happened to go to Armenia and, you know, sort of took an interest and fell in love with the rich culture uh, and the intrigue of the Soviet uh, Union. Uh, and when he 
um, grew up in, um, you know, sort of by by coincidence, married an Armenian um, and was raising his family our, uh, as Armenians. He became involved in the Armenian American community. And ultimately, uh, there was an opportunity in the early uh, 90s to revamp that accelerator that's still in Yerevan. So um, Roger actually led a mission there to lobby for its um, its relaunch. Uh, and that's how he reconnected. Um, and that's how the Paros, that's how the idea of the Paros Foundation started. He connected with a group there called the Paros Chamber Choir, um, our namesake. Uh, and that's uh, a good friend of his father's encouraged him to support this organization, this choir um, that's made up primarily of people with disabilities. Uh, so he began involvement, uh, he began being involved with the choir and there made the decision to launch the foundation. Uh, and together we started first supporting the choir and then we branched out to all the other organizations. Um, early on, it was uh, primarily based on supporting excellent and amazing organizations in Armenia that were true to their mission um, and may, perhaps needed a bit of nonprofit guidance uh, and obviously financial support. Uh, and we developed a model to support these organizations with both um, physical resources as well as uh, sort of Western nonprofit expertise. Uh, and then that branched out into um, our project-based model, which we're um, operating until today. The Paros Foundation currently has 60 very diverse active projects. Our viewers can check out all of these projects at parosfoundation.org, of course. If someone was looking for a project to donate to, I'm sure they would find a project in this group that appeals to their interests. These projects also illustrate the various types of needs that Armenia has. What do you think are the projects in this group that are going to have the most transformative impact and the most wide-reaching benefits? Uh, that's a really, really difficult question to answer because um, the our, our palette of projects really um, is reflective of both the need in Armenia as well as some of the desires in the diaspora, in the diaspora community. Uh, we, you know, we have a small staff on the ground in Armenia and they're um, constantly being approached and throughout our travels, uh, following up on our project sites, we're constantly um, running across new needs that need to be addressed. So we, we try to um, have a, a solid impact. Um, many of our projects are infrastructure-based, uh, things that the government uh, really can't get to or um, is lower on their priority list, even though, you know, they're chipping away at the, at the, uh, at the, at the, at the overall um, nut that needs to be, you know, broken, um, they're, they're not able to get to it. So, for instance, uh, in certain communities, the, the schools are, you know, in terrible condition. The kindergartens are in terrible condition. The medical centers are in terrible condition. So we try to address some of those needs because it helps lots of people. Um, on the flip side, there's donors um, and, and parts of our community in the U.S. that strictly wants to do humanitarian work. Uh, so to facilitate those kinds of projects, because that truly is a need as well. Um, it, it, we, we, you know, we identify and try to implement those kinds of projects that are very specific, very humanitarian, um, you know, in, in nature, um, and, and, you know, and help, you know, people that are in difficult situations. It's a very difficult question to answer, which is, you know, better, or which is the right way, or which is going to have the greatest, you know, impact. If, you know, I, I always sort of discuss this with, with potential donors. If you have a, you know, if you're trying to, to, to uh, build up a community, but, you know, all the people leave because they're starving in that community or because of, you know, terrible infrastructure or something, you don't, you know, you could build something and then there's nobody there um, and vice versa. You know, you can't just do short-term things with no long-term vision. So we, we try to maintain a balance between um, short-term immediate relief Long, longer-term development, and, and the ultimate in long-term development is this economic um, development sort of plan that we're in the midst of. Because if we can, you know, help develop some industry, help develop uh, jobs where people can, you know, earn a normal living, care for their families, and work themselves out of poverty, then you've, then you've done it. Then, you know, you can focus on other needs. Uh, Gumri is an excellent example of that. You know, in the – there's still – 
a couple thousand families living in domics in Cymru. These these you know remnants of shipping containers and wagons that were you know brought to Armenia with earthquake supplies in them uh, back in the you know late 80s, early 90s. Um, you know people converted those into temporary shelters that are now you know 33 years in, um, and they're in horrible conditions. And we you know we have a long-term uh, project that. Uh, well, we have a long-term and a short-term solution to that problem. The, in the short term, you know, we raise twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars per family. We find an apartment on the local market that's available. We buy it. We put it in their name with a, a gifting agreement that uh, ensures they can't sell it or or rent it out, live elsewhere, and then we tear down their domain. So, in the short term, we solve that problem for that family. You know, we bought them an apartment. We've moved on. In the long term, though, you know, uh, unfortunately, we don't have the resources to raise, you know, the $20 million or so it would take to um, solve this problem, or it's actually more than $20 million, uh, to solve this problem for all the, the families that are in this homeless kind of situation. Um, so what we've uh, done simultaneously while we operate that, that short-term project is we launched a children's center in Gumri called Tebi Arach with the goal of um, teaching these children uh, they have to do well in school, um, work with them, mentor them, address their uh, humanitarian needs, their short-term needs, you know, put boots on them so they can get to school in the wintertime, help them with their homework, um, push them into career planning uh, so they can, you know, graduate school, um, either have a solid vocation or a uh, plan for college, get into college, help them with tuition if they need to. So they, so these these children will grow up and mature in the long term to be able to understand that the the domic situation that they're in isn't really normal, um, and it's a solution that if they work hard, they can work themselves out of. So it's a it's a short and long term approach to these problems. Um, so I didn't really answer your question, uh, but I sort of hopefully explained the the problems that you face when you look at these long-term and short-term uh, humanitarian versus infrastructure versus economic development kind of projects. First of all, let me say you answered it really well because it's not about, you know, specific types of projects, uh, mentioning, you know, specific projects, but really about the types of projects and, and how you benefit from each one, you know, from the humanitarian side, from the infrastructure side. Um, I just want to say, I think that, um, I I knew, of course, that the Paros Foundation was working on the tragedy of getting people out of these domics, and I think it's, I think we really should mention it that this is really a national embarrassment. I think it's one of the great tragedies of of Armenia to know and cope with the fact that for thirty three years there has not been, you know, housing solutions for. Um, I believe, you know, at least 1,500 families as of, you know, today. And, I mean, it's just, you know, a, a few apartment buildings a year could have solved this problem. You know, no one was saying, like, solve the problem within a year. Obviously, you know, looking at it from the context of what was happening at that time, you know, the Soviet Union was crumbling when the earthquake happened and the war and everything else. But, you know, a systematic approach would have solved the problem by now. And it's just, it really is a national tragedy. Um, the Artsakh War of 2020 caused a massive humanitarian crisis in Artsakh and Armenia. There were 100,000 refugees from Artsakh fleeing the almost daily bombings that Azerbaijan inflicted on the civilian population of Artsakh. COVID-19 was already a humanitarian crisis in Armenia, and the war put that into a situation that was a humanitarian crisis that was far beyond what it was before. And the Paros Foundation responded to the war in multiple ways. Please tell us what you did. Oh, thank you. Uh, during the, I mean, during the war, as everyone in our community um, uh, was engaged in, we were, uh, you know, closely following um, what was happening and trying to figure out what we could do. And we sort of did uh, two things at that point. Number one, the Armenian government uh, and the Artsakh government asked all of the Armenian diaspora to support um, its efforts through Armenia Fund. 
So uh, the All Armenia Fund and uh, Paros, along with you know most other organizations, jumped in and uh, immediately launched a fund to raise uh, support specifically for Armenia Fund. You know to to donate to Armenia Fund so they could do um, they could the government could rely on those funds for their immediate needs. Uh, and we did that. We uh, proudly donated uh, a little over $100,000 to Armenia Fund um, during those uh, during the war war time, early in the early in the start of the war. Um, as the war progressed, we started receiving many many uh, uh, notes and and phone calls from um, donors, from people in Armenia, um, all saying. You know, our soldiers need this. Um, our humanitarian, you know, our refugees need that. Um, and a lot of it were things that you know made sense to the uh, to the you know from from sitting here in Los Angeles. Yeah, it made sense that they needed X. You know, uh, so we quickly used our our team in Armenia to develop a network to verify these requests. You know, people are saying you know people were calling and saying, well, my brother's in Armenia and he said we need you know, this specific kind of suture. Um, well, you know, we used our connections at the at the health ministry and at the defense ministry to verify, yes, they indeed need, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then we we worked um, to with our with our community to gather those those pieces of equipment or those supplies, um, both humanitarian and and a lot of medical stuff. And we immediately dispatched that to Armenia um, via uh, shipping services um, where we could, you know, get these uh, mobile field defibrillators, for instance, in the field within a week. Um, we could get, uh, you know, we shipped surgical units, we shipped uh, medical supplies, um, specific things that doctors on the ground were asking for, and we were able to um, gather and get into their hands, uh, you know, within days, uh, literally within days, either shipping with people or putting them on airplanes uh, that were leaving on a weekly basis. Um, so we did a, a lot of that during the war. Immediately after the war, um, we were working with uh, families that were still evacuating from Artsakh. Um, we helped families move their cattle out of Artsakh. We helped families um, with short-term rent. We did food and uh, clothing. Um, you know, a lot of that short-term humanitarian stuff. Um, we also did warm coats uh, for both refugee families as well as for soldiers. Um, there was a shortage. Uh, the defense ministry had indicated that a lot of the volunteers, a lot of the new soldiers that were coming in to help, um, didn't have proper gear. So we helped with uh, some of those, uh, the winter, warm winter coats. Uh, we did a campaign for that, and that um, obviously uh, had its place in the in the effort. Um, once that, once the war was complete, um, there was, you know, this turmoil with families still leaving, families starting to head back, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, the Paros Foundation discussed and, and made the decision that in the, in the immediate short term, we had to work to help secure families that were displaced from Artsakh into permanent housing in Armenia. So, you know, the number one priority that, um, I think everybody in our community felt was to have the 100,000 refugees, you know, as many of them return back to Artsakh as possible and as quickly as possible. So we worked uh, along that theme. We supported families going back. Um, and then beyond that, you know, there was, uh, there is right now about 25,000 Armenians that are still in our, uh, from Artsakh that are still in Armenia. And if they don't have a permanent solution for their housing needs um, met pretty quickly, um, they're going to lose hope and either, um, you know, leave for Europe or leave for Russia. And Russia will be the, the closest place they leave to because it's the most easy transition for them. Um, and that would be a shame as, as it was when the Syrian-Armenian uh, flood came to Armenia and weren't able to uh, stay and they left for elsewhere as well. So to try to fight that, we... Um, joined a coalition called the Armenian Resettlement Coalition. Um, there are four organizations at the time that were working together. Now we're at, we're at three, but it was Teach for Armenia, Focus on Children Now, the Paros Foundation, and Salman NGO. Um, and together we worked to um, give these families new lives. So we, we interviewed, we've interviewed over 125 families from Artsakh that were displaced. Um, we've moved uh, together 20 into new homes um, with new economic uh, support packages, 
support for the children, um, furniture for their homes, et cetera, et cetera. So these, these 20 families, you know, we did, we did a little part, but these 20 families received brand new lives. Um, and that was, um, that's still ongoing uh, now. Uh, we're, we're, we're moving the last uh, six or seven, hopefully in the next couple of months as the weather gets warm. Uh, and then the third and sort of uh, next piece of this puzzle is work in Artsakh. Um, because there is a, indeed a humanitarian crisis regarding housing in Artsakh. Um, there's families living in schools, temporary housing, um, in, in, in buildings that one could call a home, but it really is just a, a shell, um, waiting for some kind of permanent housing. Um, the Artsakh government, the Armenian government, the Armenia Fund, and the Russian government are all working on housing projects in Artsakh. And we've, uh, I'm proud to say that we're joining that uh, movement. Um, we've committed to rebuilding um, 10 homes in Artsakh um, this, this coming year, uh, some in, uh, one in Stepanagert, a couple in Mardakert, and, uh, and several in uh, the village of Mahabuz, uh, again, for Artsakh families that are there um, that need permanent housing. And that's uh, sort of the, the walkthrough of what the Parles Foundation did during the uh, 2020 Artsakh War and subsequent to that. It's incredible, really, the amount of work that you have done and other organizations have done as well. And keeping in mind the reality that this was taking place in the middle of a global pandemic where the logistics of shipping and air travel were almost impossible. I mean, you had, you know, billion dollar companies having trouble with logistics and um, you had Armenian organizations somehow securing, you know, cargo planes for humanitarian aid in the middle of all this. The Paros Foundation has been investing in the border areas of Armenia, like Tavush, uh, for many years, because we strategically can't have people abandoning the border areas of Armenia, especially now this issue has taken on a renewed urgency because Obviously, Azerbaijan has been very aggressive about trying to take territory from Armenia. Yes. Um, the work that we do in, you know, we made the decision pretty early on that it was really important to try and reach uh, the most needy communities. And, and essentially, uh, the farther away from Yerevan you are, the more needy your community ends up being. Um, the more isolated you are, the least, um, you know, the, 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 the less um, proper health care you receive, the, the school's typically in worse condition. Um, there's a whole bunch of problems being super far from the capital city. Um, you know, Yerevan actually is doing pretty well. You know, generally speaking, when you, when you visit Yerevan, uh, it's, a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful place. There's a vibrant nightlife, a vibrant restaurant scene, hospitality's on the boom. Um, when you go to Armenia's second largest city, Gumri, um, it's, it's like you've stepped back 50 years. Um, the, the situation is much worse than it is in Yerevan. And, um, you know, we made the decision to work in Gumri, which is technically also on the border with, uh, uh, Gumri is on the border with, you know, very close to Turkey. Um, and then we got up into the Tavush region and started there. Um, we've worked in remote parts of, or we're working in remote parts of Geragunik, and we're also um, in Sunik now. Um, so all of these, these communities we feel are very important because if you don't have a vibrant community on the border, um, then what, 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 you know, how secure is that border? If, you know, if there's a community where nobody's living there um, and the Azeris see that from their military posts, what does, what message does that tell them? That this community is not important to, uh, to Armenia. It's, it's, you know, it's an empty shell, a ghost town of a, of a border community. Um, so we've made the strategic um, decision um, for security purposes, if nothing else, to um, do as much as we can to build up those various border communities. In Tavush, I'm proud to say we've worked in, I think the last count I did was 13 border communities um, in the Bert and Noemberian uh, region, and those communities all border along uh, Azerbaijan, some of them as close as uh, you know, 150 meters from the, from the border. Uh, We've also worked in um, 
the Gerhardgunik region in the village of Vahan and the villages of uh, Vardenis and, and surrounding communities, um, all of the when you when you come to a village and invest in some basic infrastructure, you know, renovating the kindergarten, uh, doing some work on the school or completely renovating the school, um, investing in the medical center, um, renovating, creating a, a normal space, um, you see some new life coming into those communities. Uh, in Nerkin Garmirach, if you're one of the villages outside of uh, Bert, um, we've, you know, we've done some major work there. We've invested, um, you know, really one family and his friends, uh, the Atamian family, um, invested and adopt that, adopted that village. And over, uh, starting in 2012, really, we did our first project there. And we've, you know, built up this community to the point where now um, the birth rate numbers are doubled. It's, it's so exciting to see people feeling more secure because now they know you know, their community, their kindergarten's in great shape, their school's in excellent condition. Um, their, you know, a municipality has, um, has some uh, future planning because they have some basic infrastructure met, needs met. You know, they have a water, they have water infrastructure there, you know, they can water their, you know, they can have water inside their homes. Um, when, you, when you build that packet, people feel more secure in their existence. Um, they're not thinking about where can I go, where conditions might be a little better. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's essentially the reason why you've come to these border communities and, and essentially the reason we're going to continue working in them. It's very, very important to build these communities up so people stay and they not only just stay, but they begin to flourish as families. I'm so glad you mentioned the changes that you have seen in real time in these communities because it's just incredible to, that you have seen these changes in people's lives and families happening within the space of one to two years because of the projects that you have done? It's, you know, it's an incremental approach. If you, um, if you renovate a kindergarten that only has 10 children attending, for instance, you think, well, that's a, not a great investment. You know, it's a, yeah, it's a border community. You know, there's a thousand villagers in this community. You know, there should be 40 or 50 children of kindergarten aged or preschool aged, and but there's only 10 coming. So, you know, you, you take, you, you make the investment, you renovate that kindergarten and all of a sudden you see there's 30 children attending, you know, because people want, you know, everybody wants the best for their children. So, you know, if you, if you see that this community has a nice kindergarten and you see the schools in great shape now because it's been renovated and you know there's a, a basic um, level of health care. It might not be terrific, but it's basic. It's, you know, it, it's taking care of, you know, vaccines and some of your basic emergency needs. You know, that's a community where maybe you can, you know, build a life in. And, and your children, when they graduate, aren't going to think about how to escape to Yerevan or how to escape to, you know, Russia. Um, instead, they'll think about, okay, what can I do in my community? You know, I have a home here. Um, you know, I have land I can work, uh, you know, and, and, and build upon it. So that's, that's the goal with these projects is to, is to create a, a, a place where families can have a future within and not simply abandon and try to, try to leave. I, I believe that quality of life is everything. I think that if Armenians have security that they have the quality of life that meets their basic needs on a daily basis, they will think less about leaving the country. And that's really the bottom line. One of the humanitarian problems that has been happening in Tavush for decades is random shooting and sniper fire at civilians coming from across the border from Azerbaijan and also the deliberate destruction of Armenian property. So, for example, to combat this, one of the things that Paros Foundation has done is to build a security wall around the kindergarten to protect children from shooting coming from across the border. Yeah, it was quite ridiculous that um, we we visited the kindergarten um, back probably in 2011 or 2012, and a child ran up to us and said, look what I found, look what I found, and they had a bullet. Uh, case uh, shell that they had uh, found on the kindergarten grounds. Um, the teachers at the kindergarten wouldn't allow the children to go outside and play because they were afraid that 
um, you know, being in plain view of, of borders, uh, the Azeris could shoot at the children. Um, and that village uh, was hit many times by Azeri shelling um, throughout the years. In the 90s, it was one of the most uh, destroyed villages during the war, and then subsequent to that on Armenian soil. Um, and I think the security wall that we built was the first one that was actually built on Armenian soil. Um, and again, it wasn't anything um, uh, it wasn't anything special. It was simply a wall that was designed to, you know, stop sniper shots uh, from pen penetrating and, and, and stopping uh, the Azeris from targeting children and targeting, you know, villagers um, on, on the school grounds. With, with that, uh, there's those border communities throughout that area um, in Tavush, in, in Noemberian, in Bert, in those regions, um, run that risk. Uh, when, uh, you know, some of the villagers know that, uh, you know, Fridays from nine to noon is target practice and they know to, you know, not be in their fields. But, you know, that, that kind of, uh, you know, really uh, terror um, affects the villagers in a way that, uh, you know, both sort of short and long-term, you know, they're afraid to work their fields certain times of the day, months, because they know the Azeris are more apt to shoot at those times. Um, they don't, uh, you know, children, uh, you know, uh, certain times, you know, they don't want the children to be out. Um, there's extra stress in these families, high blood pressure, hypertension, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things spill out from this kind of, um, you know, man-made terror by these, on behalf of the Azeris. What's happened subsequent to the war, that situation's improved a bit. Um, there are less you know, accounts of shootings. Um, there's less accounts of Azeris setting, you know, fields on fire on purpose um, around harvest time. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit hopeful that uh, things might be improving. Um, but, you know, everyone's still cautious and you have to be careful because, um, you know, when you're on the border, that means you're under the, you know, watchful eye of Azeri snipers. Some people in the international community may have been shocked that Azerbaijan was targeting civilians during the Artsakh War of 2020, but Armenians know, particularly Armenians living in Artsakh and people living in the border villages, that this is not a new thing that has been happening, and it didn't just happen during the war. It's been happening for decades, and there's no denying it. We have the evidence, we have the people, we have the eyewitnesses, and this is something that really has been happening since the first Artsakh War in the 1990s. It's just horrific. It, it really is. It really is. It's unacceptable, and it's really sad that um, the international uh, human rights organizations, uh, you know, essentially could care less. For years... I have been speaking to Armenians who unfortunately doubt that donations to Armenian organizations are used to really help people without waste and fraud in the process. These concerns seem to have increased after the Artsakh war. I know people who say that they would gladly donate more money if they had more confidence. We want to inspire confidence in people to keep supporting, in Ar to, to keep supporting Armenia and Artsakh at this crucial time and in the decades to come. How does the Paros Foundation address this concern? And what would you personally say to someone who has concerns about donating to Armenian organizations? Uh, this is an excellent question and one that we uh, get on a pretty regular basis. You know, I donated $5. I want to know that my $5 actually went to its intended purposes. So, um, you know, our founder uh, and I had a, a long discussion about this early on. Um, when we launched our project-based model. And uh, to actually his credit, he made the decision to underwrite all of our administrative expenses so that every penny that comes into the Paros Foundation goes exactly to its intended purpose. You know, if, if you meant for your $5 to go to, um, you know, uh, this Artsakh fund to help a family get a new home, or if you intended it to go to Gumri to the Children's Center, that's exactly where it goes. And we encourage all of our donors and, uh, uh, and help facilitate this whenever possible to, to go and see the work that was completed, see the quality, see that, um, you know, their name's on a plaque, 
see that, you know, they can follow their money, they can follow their donation and see that it truly got to its intended place. Um, we try to be as public as possible um, and respond to uh, the public whenever they ask about budgets. Um, we try to be uh, as efficient as possible uh, with the spending of our funding um, because, you know, resources are limited. Um, and I'm always very happy when I see the results of the, the construction projects we've done and I see the budgets for the you know, children's centers we support. Um, they're all very, very efficient. Um, but it, you know, it's not enough that you know, we do our own oversight and our internal audits, et cetera, et cetera. It's important for the donors to go there. So if I was, um, you know, if I was uh, talking to a, a potential donor or to someone in the community, I'd say, you know, if you, if you give, you know, 50 or 100 bucks to something, you should go and see it. You know, it's, you know, when you're in Armenia, you should, uh, you know, go and absolutely see where your money went because it's important to follow, the, the, follow that, um, you know, follow-up is key. Um, our team in Armenia and I visit projects on a regular basis, whether they're active projects or projects we implemented years ago, um, to, to make sure that, number one, the quality of the work was there, um, that things are being followed up with. And if there's a problem, you know, if it was a problem that was our fault, we fix it. And if, if it was a problem that uh, the community's done something wrong, we stay on them until it's done right. Um, it's not a place to, you know, Armenia's not a place to throw money at. It's a place to build together. So you have to, you know, you have to be engaged. Um, you have to have a team on the ground. You have to go and see it with your own eyes. Um, and that will ensure that, um, you know, that, that old tendency of graph is, 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 you know, goes away. I think donating money to a nonprofit organization is just like doing your research before you hire someone to do work for you or before you invest in a company. People should look at the track record of the organization with their past projects and of course, in the United States, nonprofit organizations are required to release their accounting statements and on an annual basis, and you can usually find that on their website. I think that it also matters if you donate to an organization that really uses the money wisely to make the best possible impact with the money that you're donating. Absolutely super important to follow through and do your research. After the Artsakh war and the continuing threats that Armenia and Artsakh face from Azerbaijan, there have been a lot of conversations about what Armenia and the diaspora failed to do in the last 30 years. And I just want to say a few words about this. I think that the first issue is that people are not really aware of the work that Armenian organizations do. Because for reasons that I don't understand, Armenia, Armenian media rarely covers the projects being done by various organizations. I also think the larger issue is that for the past 30 years, organizations have been doing a lot of the work that should be done by the national and local governments in Armenia. Organizations are having trouble devoting resources to innovation, improvements in education, transformative economic development, business incubators, and so on, because organizations are doing the fundamental work of laying down water pipes, building highways, renovating Soviet-era buildings, and other basic necessity projects. For example, among the list of active projects that the Pados Foundation is currently doing, these are some of the infrastructure projects that you have. The renovation and expansion of a kindergarten building in Igazor Village, which the community requested. Replacing a 200-meter section of a water pipe in Verin Sakavan village in Tabush. Providing new windows for the, for the kindergarten building in Yevard village in Sunik. Extensive renovations of the kindergarten building in Norgeri village in Kotai. The last infrastructure project I'm going to mention is the project to bring gas heating to a school in Khoratan village in Tabush. A new gas heating system was installed at the school that was previously burning wood for heat. There was no gas pipe going to the school, so the governor's office requested that the Pados Foundation help fund the installation of a new gas pipe for the new heating system. Of course, infrastructure projects help the economy, facilitate education, and improve quality of life. 
I believe that the government should focus on infrastructure building and maintenance, leaving nonprofit organizations to do the projects that the government can't do really well. I'm going to mention some of the projects that the Pados Foundation is currently doing that really apply the innovative vision and strengths of nonprofit organizations. For example, we have the Assyrian Vocational Training Program in Gyumri, which provides young adults with vocational courses and hands-on training in partnership with local companies. The Pados Foundation has implemented a recycling program in 10 border villages in Tabush that is focused on teaching children the benefits of recycling. There's a partnership with Musical Armenia to provide 18 children in Vanazor with scholarships to attend a music school. Finally, the Argepar Business Incubator Project can potentially transform the economy of a village that is in dire need of economic opportunities. The Pados Foundation is renovating a closed factory building to provide a space for local people to launch small businesses with guidance and support. The Pados Foundation is also going to help these businesses access markets in Armenia and export markets as well. You, you did a terrific job summarizing the, the challenges that um, the diaspora community of NGOs or the international group of NGOs has um, and, and the roles that the Armenian government has and, and, and what's happening. Um, you really, really hit it just right. It's, you know, if, if Armenia had all of uh, the infrastructure needs taken care of, um, then, you know, I think the, the diaspora organizations and NGOs would be left to, um, you know, working on investing in Armenian culture, working on, you know, uh, uh, doing high-end, uh, you know, things like the Tumo Center. And, and there are some visionary programs happening in Armenia. There absolutely are. Um, you know, Tumo is an excellent example now. Um, they're, you know, replicating their model throughout the country. Um, they're teaching, uh, you know, uh, they're opening the children's eyes to um, other things that are, that are uh, available that their schools probably don't have. Um, but, you know, if you have, a, uh, if you only have a Tumo center, um, and I'm just using Tumo as an example. If you only have a Tumo center in a village, but the school's roof is, you know, leaking, um, that's not going to solve our problems either. You know, it, it's, it's, it has to be a, a balance, again, of short-term fixes and long-term solutions. So, you know, the innovative stuff is the long-term solution. We're slowly changing people's mentality. We're slowly, you know, helping develop um, economic stability in these communities, you know, and in the short term, we're solving some of their infrastructure problem. Um, you know, I'm not pro or anti any government um, that's in power in Armenia. We've worked with, you know, the old guys, we've worked with the new guys um, at all levels, at the village level, at the municipality level, at the, you know, Hamaik level, at the, you know, and at the national level. Um, each government since the beginning has had a plan for renovating X amount of schools, for renovating X amount of uh, medical centers, for, you know, pulling X amount of pipelines. Um, the, the problem has been over the years, um, the inefficiency of the system um, by which they implement these projects, um, you know, and, and that inefficiency was, you know, is a combination of government bureaucracy, um, theft and, you know, bribing and all that corruption stuff, as well as um, sort of the nature of the times, the supply chain of, of, of uh, materials that were available, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, the, the government has a list of X amount of schools that they're renovating this year. Um, you know, we uh, work with them to understand what they're doing so we can decide what we're going to do. Um, in a perfect world, as you said, the government would be able to take care of all these uh, infrastructure problems and leave the NGOs to developing Armenia's rich culture and and working on um, innovative and cutting edge uh, investments in the in the in the community. Uh, you, you, the you know the one thing that I can say post war is that we've uh, we the the Paros Foundation are specifically looking at these opportunities um, even deeper than we were pre-war to to develop economic opportunities for locals um you know the you know armenia cannot move ahead 
um, without a strong military, for instance. Armenia cannot move ahead without a strong high-tech industry. Um, so the high-tech folks need to be investing in the high-tech industry. The, you know, the military folks that are involved in military, you know, outside of Armenia need to be involved in military uh, planning and development and companies in Armenia. Um, you know, we... Uh, are doing quite a bit of work in villages. So we're looking at trying to put people to work, create opportunities um, to, to solve a problem and put people to work. You know, Armenia as a small example, and this drives me crazy, um, you know, uh, the fact that Armenia is not food secure. You know, we have to continue to import food from outside of the country because we don't have enough food to feed ourselves. Um, so, you know, what what can we do to help improve that. Well, we can help plant more food. We can help, you know, uh, talk about, um, you know, implement, we're in the process of implementing an aquaponics project where we'll be able to grow um, food in a very sustainable way um, with very little water, um, with, you know, solar power, et cetera, et cetera. That's a model, quite frankly, that might end up being implemented in 50 villages in Armenia um, and help chip away at that problem of food insecurity. You know, we don't have enough. We're not growing enough food. Um, you know, in these communities all along the border um, and in Gumri, uh, you know, one of their biggest crops is wheat. But, you know, with wheat, uh, if you don't have the ability to water those fields, all you do is you plant the seeds and you, you know, you do a rain dance and hope that uh, uh, the, the crops will get enough rain to um, produce a decent harvest of wheat that year. It's a very uh, sustenance farming kind of situation. Um, but with an aquaponics system, yeah, you're not going to necessarily grow um, wheat in an aquaponics situation, but you can grow lots of other crops um, that will uh, both be seedlings to, you know, to plant in the grounds or to, um, or to grow crops that you can export um, at high value, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's lots of, there's lots of innovative things that um, NGOs can do within their, within their means. Um, but, you, you know, it's just, unfortunately, it's impossible to ignore the immediate needs that, uh, you know, the government has. Um, and like I said, the old government and the new governments are all um, working on these problems. They're just taking a, a, an awful lot longer than they should have. I'm glad you mentioned the food security issue because it is really stunning to me that Armenia does not have enough food to sustain itself without relying on imports because we have all, you know, Armenia is a small country, but we have all this amazing land that is literally just empty. You know, for those who have traveled in Armenia, outside of Yerevan, people are just amazed at the vast stretches of land that are just sitting empty and uncultivated. And, you know, they all say the same thing. If only people would cultivate th these lands or, you know, develop something like uh, what we have here in the United States. And I know it's not the best model. It's industrial agriculture, obviously. But, you know, that's what we have in the United States with the large scale, like, chicken hatcheries and things like that, where in Armenia, we're importing chicken that is actually less expensive than the chicken that is being produced in Armenia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What is the biggest challenge that the Pados Foundation has in the work that you do? It's a positive challenge. It's not, it's not a huge problem. Um, but it's the, you know, it's the, it's the model that we operate by. So I'll just, I'll just explain that really quickly. Um, you know, the, the, there's two people here in Los Angeles uh, that work to raise funds and we oversee the projects that are being implemented in Armenia remotely from here. Um, we have a team of five staffers in Armenia. Um, so the, the seven of us essentially is the Paros Foundation and we work um, and we do a pretty darn good job making sure our projects are implemented to the, uh, the way that a donor here would expect. So the, so the, the challenge is that um, our projects have to be, you know, implemented with a solid budget um, in a, in a, with a high quality, you know, uh, low budget, high quality materials, high quality uh, craftsmanship work um, so that we can in turn report back to our donors that this was done successfully at a reasonable budget, 
you know, um, with its intended purpose so that they're willing to reinvest in the next project. So it's this cycle. You know, I, I, I might be the best salesperson in the world and can raise, you know, millions of dollars a year. But if the projects are lousy and they're not done well, word's going to get back to the donors and then the, the cycle is going to break. So our biggest challenge is honestly balancing that um, that wheel, keeping that wheel rolling forward. So, you know, reporting to the donors, you know, raising money from the donors, identifying the project, finding the sponsor, raising the money, starting the project, reporting back to the donors so that they see that the, you know, it was done well so that they can tell their friends. And then that next cycle starts the next project and the next project. Um, and that's how we've, uh, developed the organization. We started out, um, with a budget that was uh, all administrative. So our, our, you know, our founder was covering uh, the entire budget. Um, and now um, he puts in, uh, he and his family put in a chunk of money to cover, to underwrite our administrative costs. And we raise and implement about a million and a half dollars worth of projects a year now in Armenia. Um, and that's uh, within a period of the last, you know, 15 years. We, uh, we ratchet, ratcheted it up. Um, and the war, obviously, there were a lot of donations that came in specifically during the war. Um, that was a, uh, a huge boost for, I think, all Armenian organizations. There were people active. Um, but beyond that, um, our, our base is about uh, $1.5 million worth of projects a year in Armenia. And we've been able to maintain that level for um, the last three or four years now. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the amount of money that you devote to projects every year because it's really stunning. You know, people think, okay, a million and a half dollars is obviously a lot of money, but it's really not a lot of money when you're embarking on infrastructure type projects where you're renovating buildings. Anyone who has built anything, you're, you're just shocked at how expensive everything is. So it's just incredible the amount of work that you have done with, you know, a, a very limited amount of money. And one of the issues that we were talking about earlier is, you know, why doesn't the government do these things? I mean, it's hard to really justify that the government didn't have an extra million and a half dollars a year, you know, to do, to have done some of the things that you have done that are similar as far as just the infrastructure projects. I'm not talking about the mm -hmm. other, obviously, innovative projects that you have devoted to. Um, completing. So in 2011, you announced the 100 for 100 Projects for Prosperity Initiative, a bold and ambitious plan to complete 100 projects by 2015 to honor the memory of the Armenian Genocide. Yeah, that was something we came up with as a bit of a slogan, but also set forth our project-based model of philanthropy. Um, you know, the, the contention we made was that you know, people and organizations all around the world um, wanted to figure out how to properly commemorate the centennial of the Armenian Genocide. Um, and, you know, there were a whole bunch of plans we were hearing. People were going to place ads in the paper and, you know, all this stuff. And we thought we'd take a positive spin on this. Um, we started in 2011 because we knew if we announced publicly and loudly early on, um, we'd help the community itself think about what they indeed wanted to do. Um, we were among the first to announce uh, a, a concrete uh, set of plans for uh, how we were going to commemorate the centennial of the genocide. And, you know, I think that started the, that started the floodgate of activities that took place uh, prior to 2015. And in addition, we thought we could have a solid impact. You know, we could create a, a positive atmosphere for families organizations, individuals that wanted to do something uh, to mark the centennial, um, but do it in a positive manner. So um, we began identifying projects. We accepted projects from the public, both from the diaspora as well as from Armenia itself, um, things that needed to be done. And that um, proved to be very, very successful. Our 100th project, we actually symbolically opened on April 20. 4th, 2015, as the, the Tebi Arach Children's Center in Gubri. And this is that center I referred to earlier where we were talking about um, helping these children work themselves out of poverty. Uh, that was the, that's the center that we opened in 2015, and it's still uh, booming right now. There's 180 children 
that attend that center. Um, and we, through that model and through that experience of, you know, identifying a budget, um, the project started at $250 and went all the way up to $100,000. So there was a variety of projects in that, in that 100 projects we implemented. Um, but what we learned in that is, is uh, something very valuable. Um, people in the diaspora like specific things to support. You know, if I if I call a donor, if I if I talk to your viewers and and I say, listen, we need you know a thousand dollars or twenty five hundred dollars to do X, you know, and it's specific, and you can go visit it, you can see it. We'll send you pictures of it. Um, when it's done, the the children will send you a note, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're willing to support. They they're they're looking for ways to engage, and that very specific project based model, um, knowing that you know, the administrative costs are underwritten by somebody else um, has become successful. So after the completion of the 100 projects, um, we continued in that very same manner. And now I think we're over, you know, 300 completed projects or something like that. Many of the 100 projects and the projects that you have done since then are collaborative efforts with local organizations. What are the advantages and challenges in working with local organizations on projects? Another excellent question. So, you know, local organization, it's important for the diaspora to, to listen and understand um, what an Armenian in Armenia or organization based in Armenia is saying, um, because the, sometimes the, the, the needs are unique. And other times they're very similar to what an, an NGO would face here in the U.S. So it's a learning experience partnering with a local organization, um, explaining what our set of uh, needs would be if we engage in this project, understanding what their needs would be, and then working together to solve those needs. Um, it's really, really excellent when uh, you can work with a local organization as a, uh, and, and the individuals running that organization as colleagues. Um, and building up their capability, capability through the implementation of a project that solves, you know, both sets of needs. Uh, it's, it's really excellent. Um, it is challenging. There's a lot of miscommunication. There's a lot of, um, uh, you know, you can oftentimes be, uh, you know, they, they can try to take advantage, et cetera, et cetera. But if you, uh, if you, the organization, or if you, the individual, do your homework and understand, you know, what the prevailing wages for the work, what the, you know, what, uh, what the acceptable um, number of staffers are for a particular project, et cetera, et cetera, you can come up with a, a win-win situation. And um, at the end of the day, you have a lifelong friend, you've made the Armenian world smaller by bringing everybody together, um, and, and you'll have a, uh, a solid working um, relationship moving into the future with these uh, you know, with this village, with this community, with this project, with the children, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's absolutely incredible. And one of the things that I want to mention is you can also have a bit of a culture clash while you're working, you know, if you're a diaspora and Armenian working with people in Armenia, you think like we're all Armenians and we're all the same culture. 99% of it is the same culture, but that little 1% because of the communities worldwide that have developed their own distinct, you know, social mores and cultures and different, you know, just, you can, you can actually experience that and it just amazes you, but you get over it and you learn something new. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so amazing uh, when we approach these new communities because the first tendency um, is for them to want to host us. So come, sit down, we have to break bread, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, our team has 15 projects to view that day. So, you know, we can't break bread with every one of the projects. So we, we kind of space it out. Uh, and it's a cultural thing. So, you know, we, we go, okay, last time we went here to this community, he offered us, you know, to sit down and have dinner. We, we passed, you know, once, twice, three times. This time it's his turn. Now we have to sit down with him, you know, and it's a, it's, it's a cultural thing. Um, you have to do it, you know, in, in, um, you know, within reason uh, and you do it, you know, as, as you need to, but it's always wonderful to see the, um, 
the passion at which these communities invest in these projects. So that's when you know you're doing the right project. Um, when the community's happy, when your team is happy, uh, when uh, the children are happy, the teachers are happy. It's, it's, it's a wonderful culmination of a project when things have come together in a way where everybody celebrates um, and, you know, English, Armenian, Russian, doesn't matter. You know, it all, it all comes together and everyone ends up speaking that same language of, of you know, happiness and success. I want to end our interview on a note that hopefully will inspire people to take action. Can you describe the Paros Foundation Service Armenia program? And please explain what kind of time and financial commitment are required for participants. This is an excellent final question. Uh, in 2013, um, my children actually wanted an experience where they go to, um, you know, Armenia with uh, a group of like-minded students and experience, um, you know, Armenia. And uh, because it was my daughter's, um, I refused to allow them to just, you know, go out and party and have fun. Um, we had to make it something meaningful. And, you know, back in 2013, it was very difficult for um, a young person, a young student to go and engage in meaningful work or have an internship. I mean, it, it was possible, but more times than not, it was a different set of work ethics. And it was very difficult for, you know, uh, a student to to leave with a meaningful experience. So instead of trying to set up internships for the students, we decided to create a program based on service, getting needed service work done, um, touring them around the country, uh, letting them have fun, um, and, and uh, falling in love with Armenia was the goal. So we created, we launched something called Service Armenia. We operate it every summer. Uh, this year it's gonna be from July 3 to July 24. Um, it's open to students ages 17 to 23. Um, and then we have a program in the fall that we started last summer, uh, last fall, uh, for, for young professionals ages 25 or 24 to 45. Uh, so it's sort of two phases. The, you know, college age students, essentially high school and college age students come in the summers and then, uh, young professionals, uh, have a program in the fall. Um, the, summer program is uh, really, really fabulous. We've had about 120 students go through that program over the years. Um, they become lifelong friends with one another. They have a, a newfound passion for Armenia because they put a little sweat equity into it. Um, they do a combination of working with uh, children um, and children's centers. They work on construction projects while they're there. Uh, they work, um, we do some orphan excursions where we take children from the orphanages in Armenia and take them out on half-day excursions. Um, and they, they see a part of Armenia that uh, most tourists don't see. Um, I'm very proud to say that uh, about 35% of um, the students that come and participate on Service Armenia are back in Armenia within the next year or two. Um, they plan on, you know, okay, next summer, this is what I'm going to do. We have students that repeat with us. Um, we have students that um, um, come back and participate on other programs. Uh, and it's really, really excellent. It's, you know, it's the, the future is connecting these children and young people to Armenia in a meaningful way um, where they know this is their place as well. And they see opportunities to engage. Um, the young professional trip, which happens in the fall, um, is, is the next level. It's, you know, I'm a young finance person or I'm a young high tech person. Uh, and, uh, we try to connect them with like-minded people in Armenia as well. So they understand how in the future they can work together. Uh, they can, you know, how, how they can, um, learn from one another and they can grow together. So, it, you know, it's the same program, but for professionals and, uh, they're, they're absolutely a blast. Um, and they're really, really successful. So uh, the financial part of it is um, we ask all the participants to make a financial contribution, a donation um, that we use to implement the service work that they're going to work on. Um, and that's usually a three or $400 contribution, um, depending on which program. Um, I think this year we're doing $400 contributions for the summer program. Uh, and then in addition, the, uh, the lodging, the, uh, some of the food, um, you know, the work days, the transportation, the touring, all of that, 
um, the fee is about $1,800, and that includes the donation. So uh, about 1800 bucks plus your airline ticket um, will get a young person there for the summer. Um, and some of the young people actually work in advance to raise part of the money, which is even better because it uh, makes them even more committed to service. And that's one of the goals, obviously. So um, we've had students do bake sales. We've had students do fundraisers, reach out to their family and friends for support, um, collect recyclables, you know, all kinds of different things to raise a few bucks before they get there um, to help underwrite their fees. Uh, we expect that, well, we're hopeful that COVID will be under control this summer and our uh, July 3rd launch date will be a success this year. Just in my personal life and speaking to young people and also the number of organizations that are facilitating programs where young people and young professionals get to Armenia, I find that once they get to Armenia, it's like a lifelong connection. A, a, a relationship is born with Armenia that lasts a lifetime. And of course, you know, it's not everybody. There are people. But I find, again, 99% of young people. So the key is to have that program that facilitates these kinds of trips and excursions to give people the opportunity to go to Armenia in a structured way where they're actually doing meaningful work in Armenia while they're there. Yeah, a absolutely. And it's so nice to see that there's so many programs offering that opportunity. Um, you know, the, the church has programs, the uh, youth groups have programs, um, the, the scout groups have programs. Um, our, our niche was um, service and, um, you know, our theme is sort of work, tour, and play. You know, we want, we want these, these uh, groups to connect with one another, these students to connect with one another. And it's so interesting because, you know, you'll get a student, we, we've had students that are one quarter Armenian that knew their, you know, grandpa and their mom's side was Armenian or whatever, and, and no other connection to the community. And then we've had students that are, you know, born and raised in Glendale, go to Armenian school, you know, and their entire, you know, and they don't have any non-Armenian friends. And you throw those two groups, you know, you still throw those two students together, and then you start discussing Armenian genocide you know, development, uh, war, um, you know, and, and, and they find a new, it really broadens their horizons on these issues. And it's really spectacular to see that, uh, that uh, discussion take place. That's one of the things that I really enjoy over the summer is um, helping facilitate these discussion nights. We do, we do that as part of the program where we, we throw a topic out and, and do some general um, uh, you know, leading them down the path, and then we let them, you know, let them take over. And and you know that kid that's diehard Armenian raised, you know, uh, Armenian every day um, sees a different perspective. And that kid that's you know kind of disconnected with the community sees a perspective. And and you know it forms like William Soroyan said, it forms a new Armenia, and it's uh, really terrific, really really terrific. Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a privilege to get your insights on what it takes to lead a very successful nonprofit organization. You have an incredible track record of completing projects of all time types. And at the same time, you're always thinking creatively about how to overcome obstacles to accomplish your goals. I urge everyone to visit padosfoundation.org where you can take a look at the active projects that still need donations and past projects as well. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciated this opportunity. Um, and uh, you and the Armenian Alliance are doing amazing work to help spread the word. Thank you so very much. My guest today is Peter Abadjan, Executive Director of the Pados Foundation, joining us from Los Angeles, California.